Hello and welcome to the Insight is Capital podcast. I'm Pierre Daly, Managing Editor of AdvisorAnalyst.com. My special guest today previously served as the Global Head of ETF Research and Implementation Strategy and as a Managing Director at BlackRock and prior to that, Barclays Global Investors from 2008 to 2011. She also worked as Managing Director and Head of the Investment Strategy Team at Morgan Stanley in London from 1997 to 2008 and as an associate at the fabled Greenwich Associates. She has been working with investors, ETFs, ETPs, index providers, exchanges, market makers, APs, regulators, and trade associations, as well as custodians, law firms, accounting firms around the world since 1997. Her ETF research focus firm counts among its research and consulting clients some of the leading firms in the ETF ecosystem around the world. She was the recipient of the 100 Women in Finance 2017 European Industry Leadership Award, the 2014 William F. Sharp Lifetime Achievement Award for Outstanding Contributions to the Field of Index Investing, and she was named one of the 100 Most Influential Women in Finance by Financial News over several years, most recently in 2016. She's a founder and board member of Women in ETFs, or WE, or WE for short, the first women's group for the ETF industry, founded in January of 2014, WE is a nonprofit organization that brings together over 4,500 members, including women and men, in chapters in major financial centers around the world to connect, support, and inspire. Deborah Fur, managing partner and founder of ETFGI, is with me today. This is the Insight is Capital podcast. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast are those of the individual guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of AdvisorAnalyst.com or of our guests. This broadcast is meant to be for informational purposes only. Nothing discussed in this broadcast is intended to be considered as advice. Deborah, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Thank you. It's great to be here and thank you for that. So I should add that we're actually in two weeks time celebrating the 10th anniversary of uh ETFGI, the company I founded, which is kind of amazing. I'd love to hear you know, a little bit more about your background, your career, how you um, rose to the high echelons of the ETF industry in the earliest days, uh, the genesis of ETFGI. Uh, and I want to make sure we get to talk about women in ETFs as well uh, before we, we part today. Yeah, so I guess, you know, the backstory a little bit before starting at Greenwich Associates is I always up, was up for a challenge, and I actually was a lifeguard in Greenwich, Connecticut, where I grew up, and I was recruited to be on the softball team, the women's softball team, for Greenwich Associates. And I heard about Charlie Ellis, the founder, heard how difficult it was for most people to work with them. They typically lasted about six months and felt like it was way too much work. And so I set the challenge for myself to uh, work with him. And uh, when I was graduating from university, the person who was working with him as the associate had announced she was going to leave. And I went up to him at the company picnic and said I wanted to work with him. The head of HR heard about this and told me this was a huge mistake, but um, <laughs> I decided to do that. And <laughs> it was definitely challenging, but it was great. I got the opportunity to travel all over the world with him. I was able, while I was getting my MBA, to set up consulting programs in Japan and manage them and uh, learned a heck of a lot of stuff, but that's how I decided I really wanted to not work in the U.S., but work overseas, which led me to eventually, um, you know, being in London, getting the job at uh, Morgan Stanley on the sales and trading desk, getting involved with ETFs, where Morgan Stanley had partnered with Barclays Global Investors and MSCI 
to create Web's World Equity Benchmark Shares. So those right. 17 MCI benchmarks became iShares. And I had a great time, you know, meeting investors, helping private wealth management within Morgan Stanley and traveling the world, uh, fixed income to go equities in Morgan Stanley. So ended up uh, leaving. I joined Barclays Global Investors on the day Lehman filed for bankruptcy. So that day will stay in my <laughs> mind for uh, ever. Yeah. Um, and we got some new clients based on that. And then uh, when BlackRock bought BGI, I decided I wanted to go back to the sell side had an offer to be the global head of Delta One Strategy, um, accepted that, resigned, and that bank, as they often do, reorganized like two weeks later. I learned that I wasn't going to be able to speak to the press or do some of the things I thought I was going to be able to do and decided to set up ETFGI, which, as I said, is turning 10 years old, so pretty exciting. And um, yeah. And Women in ETF came about um, really eight years ago, so January is the anniversary uh, founded in 2014. And the idea that made sense for me was often when people come into the ETF industry, it is a simple product and it's intended to be simple, but it's the only democratic product out there where it's used by, you know, pension funds, hedge funds, advisors, and retail. And you need to know a lot of things to be able to talk successfully and understand and be successful because you need to understand regulation, tax a bit, you need to understand trading benchmarks, asset classes, asset allocation, um, the rules that people think about when investing, uh, et cetera. So I found that, you know, when I worked at Morgan Stanley, I was like one of 11 female managing directors. And so having people to talk to was really important. I think networking right. is important. Right. So the goal of Women ETFs is to connect, support, inspire women in diversity within the ETF industry and we actually now um, have 7,200 members in over 26 chapters around the world. So it's pretty exciting to see the growth of the industry. We do mentorship, university outreach. Um, we have a speakers bureau to encourage events and uh, the press to speak to women who are experts in their fields. And uh, excited to watch the growth of uh, you know young people grow their careers and stay in the industry and really enjoy the uh, success that they can and should have. Yeah, I mean, the industry has certainly become uh, far more dynamic than it was just a, a short 10 to 20 years ago. Um, so, I, you know, I noticed that your time at Greenwich Associates was um, a footnote in your bio. But when I saw that, I thought, wow, you know, Charlie Ellis, <laughs> what was just, uh, you know, what was that like working for sort of one of the demigods of, of, of finance? Yeah, you know, it was really challenging, but it was also really rewarding yeah. because often these heads of various firms would be calling me as this junior person, like in the office saying, you know, how do I understand the data in this report? What does it mean? And to be able to talk to, you know, some of the leaders that you would read in the press, um, you know, almost daily was pretty exciting. And he would take me to meetings, but it was also very challenging. So Charlie basically would get up at the crack of dawn. He'd come into the office in Greenwich. He, we all had little cubby holes and he would drum, drop all the work that had to be done into a box. And uh, I had to get stuff done and put back into the cubby hole that he would come late at night and collect, take home. He'd still be working. And it was this vicious cycle of... Uh, making sure everything was uh, up to date and being done. But it was a great learning experience and the firm had a lot of interesting people working for it and great clients all over the world. And it was uh, a wonderful experience. And uh, 
but definitely challenging. Yeah, I bet. Um, and and uh, so you mentioned uh, mentioned that that you were uh, one of eleven uh, women who were managing directors at Morgan Stanley. Um, aside from you know, you mentioned that that it was great to have people. It was great to know uh, that there were other people, other women in the firm that you could talk to. Um, but what was that like for you as a woman? As, as a minority within the firm, you know, a firm that was dominated by men, what was that like for you uh, just in terms of the everyday? Yeah, so that was 11 in Europe in the equity division. But yeah, I think, well, I grew up as a tomboy, right? So that was part of, you know, I was happy to go be the pitcher on the women's softball team at Greenwich Associates because I enjoyed being outdoors and doing sports. So um, it didn't bother me, but I did see how, um, sitting on the trading floor, it often was hard to get time from people to talk to you when you had questions, right? They're like, yay, I'm busy, come yeah. back. And it wasn't anything personal. It didn't matter if I was, you know, female, male or anything else. Um, it's just people were busy. And so I do think that um, one of the things I found about being overseas as opposed to in the U.S. was in the U.S., often people will say to you, I'll call you if I need you. And I found that it was much more collaborative. People wanted to talk to you, to meet with you in Europe and around the world. And having moved from the U.S. to Europe and then at times going to Japan or going to Australia or, you know, somewhere else in the world, um, people really were in some ways surprised um, and in other ways really wondering, like, what does this person know? Mm -hmm. You know, Morgan Stanley asked me to go out to Saudi Arabia and explain to the exchange and the regulator what are ETFs and how should they think about them. So I was really lucky that I raised my hand to be involved with ETFs at the time I did and really gave me the opportunity because no one else was so interested. I mean, when I started, there were 21 ETFs and $8 billion. So clearly <laughs> some successful guy is not going to raise his hand saying, yeah. hey, you know, I want to do this. Um, so, you know, I think that is one of the things that women often do is they're willing to get involved with things that aren't the high profile um, areas in the beginning and um, try to work through it and grow the opportunity. Um, and to me, that's really played out. I think, you know, ironically, somehow, I don't know why, I was always allowed to speak to the press on my own. It's like the PR people at Morgan Stanley and EGI BlackRock would say, well, you know what you're doing as long as you follow the guidelines, you go talk to people. So um, that means I have a lot of relationships with people in the press. And, you know, I'd go to meetings with, you know, the FT in London and I'd be there without a PR person. And they were always a little bit surprised, but it meant I had a lot of direct connections with these people, which is why when I thought I was going to join a bank to do, you know, Delta One strategy and then learned I couldn't speak to the press, I knew that was not going to be great because you do need the press to talk about what's going on and to correct misunderstandings. Because I do think, um, you know, it used to be people would talk negatively about hedge funds. Now you find that people are very easily trying to blame everything and anything on ETFs um, with a bit of misunderstanding of what they might be doing. Um, so I think you do need to make sure that you can get clear and accurate facts out there to the market and doing it through the press is uh, quite useful. Do you think your time at, at uh, I'm not, just, I don't want to feel like I'm harping on your time at Greenwich, but do you think that your time at Greenwich really sort of steeped you in this realistic objectivity about the markets 
that that was so pervasive in Charlie Ellis's philosophy? Well, I mean, he definitely was and is a fan of index investing. Right. You know, he wrote The Loot Game. Um, so it's that a terrific did, book. I, I mean, think, a, a, like one of the quintessential classics. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And the other one he wrote was, uh, uh, I'm trying to think, that he did the, one of the first studies of the performance of active mutual fund managers relative to the S&P 500, which now S&P does, right. you know, the speed of studies. Um, so I do think his way of thinking, his um, analytic way of talking about the markets, doing questionnaires, producing reports, clearly influenced my ability to do these things and how to think about and engage with people around the world. Um, so, you know, I was asked by him to go to Japan and figure out how to do the research, which meant I had to figure out what types of studies they were going to do, who they were going to interview, who would do that work on the ground, and then put together all the questionnaires, et cetera. So that was a big kind of challenge and interesting thing to go to Japan, right? Because I don't speak Japanese. Right. I actually, unfortunately, don't speak any other language, but uh, it was combined British, American, English. Um, but yeah, I think I love challenges and trying to figure out how, how to make things work. So it definitely influenced me in many different ways. Um, and I would hope for the good. Um, I do think probably the bad is um, he wasn't great with work-life balance. And I think my, although I would say a lot of what I do is work, I also feel these people are friends and there is not this clear delineation of right. this is work and this is not work, um, but probably um, and able and willing to work longer than many people find is appropriate or convenient for them. So I'm I'm curious to know what uh, your observation uh, your observations were from your time in in Japan. The differences culturally in in the economy, the markets. I mean, in the financial business, was there any was there any key differences that you recognized when you were in Japan, for instance? Well, there definitely is a different culture in terms of work. So clearly, that was a case where it was very difficult for females, especially Japanese females, to be in, you know, senior roles, significant roles in firms, you would often see them as really just the receptions who would greet you when you walked into offices. So I do think that was where I saw the real benefit of being a foreigner coming in. The men were quite interested to understand why and how this lady was a managing director. Um, but, and then I also think that you have to understand sometimes when people say yes, it's yes, I heard you and not yes, I'm going to do right. something. Or um, So I think you learn about the proper way where to sit. I mean, Japan does have a lot of cultural nuances in terms of where you sit at a table, um, who talks first, how to handle business cards. Right. So yes, there was a lot to learn, um, which could be a whole podcast session on uh, <laughs> how to deal and uh, I'm sure I made a number of mistakes. I remember one time being out to dinner with some of my colleagues and, uh, you know, the restaurant served uh, fish in like six different ways. And I was totally stuffed because I don't tend to eat huge meals, especially not when I'm traveling. And uh, I understood that offering my food that I was too full, you know, please, you can have it, was kind of flirting with someone and clearly was not my intention. But uh, yeah, so you do learn uh different things going along that you hadn't even imagined you were going to have to be aware of. Amazing. I mean, it, it's, it's, uh, it has, I mean, it, it has given you sort of this 
it, ha it has really set the stage for what you've accomplished at ETFGI in terms of your global view of ETF markets and, oh, I mean, of markets in general, but, but of course, of how the ETF is transforming uh, world markets as well. Um, so, Deborah, from, from your 30,000-foot your view of, of, of markets um, and ETFs, what are some of the key trends that you've discovered uh, last year? Uh, the last two years have been particularly interesting because of the pandemic and because of the way markets have performed. What's been going on? Yeah, I think one of the most important things was, you know, regulators had thought that if there was a lot of volatility, if there were significant creations, redemptions, especially in fixed income, ETFs were going to fall over and not work. And so clearly, you know, in 2020, we saw that there was a lot of volatility. There was a lot of creations and redemptions and ETFs, including fixed income ETFs, worked very well. We also saw that the Fed came in to use fixed income ETFs, which I think gave them extra credibility as an investment product. And they were buying, you know, high yield and uh, investment grade corporate bonds. Um, I also have seen that the types of products has expanded. So if we look at um, the types of products that have been popular over the past couple of years, the COVID pandemic situation clearly demonstrated to many people around the world that with fewer planes, trains, and automobiles going around, the skies got a lot bluer and the sun was a lot clearer all over the place. Right. So the environmental impacts and ESG came to the forefront on that basis. It also came to the forefront because of, you know, Black Lives Matter, um, diversity right. issues, we saw the S become more important also, and of course, governance. So I think ESG has been one which has been demonstrated as being important. And also diversity means better performance. You move away from groupthink. Um, and so it's been demonstrated that policies around HR in certain countries um, really have contributed to growing GDP. So I think the ESG theme has been very important. I think thematics is another area where for many investors, they want to be able to invest. They like that idea of, hey, I want a great idea. And it used to be buying individual securities. You know, some of the reforms around commission payments has caused brokers to write less research. And so I think ETFs with the transparency and a lot of really smart people trying to come up with innovative ways of delivering new exposures to investors Thematic ETFs have allowed people to invest in disruptive technology, you know, other trends, changes because of demographics, and they can still go out and talk to their, well, not go out maybe, but <laughs> can talk to their friends about, you know, hey, I just invested in X. So right. whether it's gaming or whatever. I think the other big change we saw was um, when COVID hit, if you look at, and I didn't spend a lot of time watching TV, but I remember I flew back from the States on March 11, 2020. And of course, you know, the news was all about COVID. So I had my PC open and next to it, I had uh, an iPad watching CNBC. And it was impressive to me to realize that almost every, like is a sector or a uh, country or something happening, they were showing the names and tickers of ETFs as a way to represent this. So right. clearly, you know, I can remember back when I was at Morgan Stanley, I was excited when I got the FT to write about ETFs at the beginning of one year. And at the end of the year, I said, you know, assets have grown and this has happened. And they're like, we wrote about ETFs. We're not going to do it again. And, you know, now they're doing it like all the time, like across the whole day. 
And I think for many people, especially men, they normally didn't have a lot of hobbies they would do in their house, right? right? For most men, it's, hey, let's go out to a sports game or let's go out to the pub or whatever. I think for many, putting some money aside to, you know, trade and invest and think about their finances caused many people to think about ETFs. Um, and I think the other thing we saw was in 2020, Charles Schwab did a study of the U.S. market and said, 15% of investors in the stock market in 2020 were new investors. And so we see younger people coming into the markets. Um, and so those younger people are thinking about ETFs in different ways. And I think, again, ESG and themes fit there. Um, and I would say also we're seeing, because of regulatory changes, the use of model portfolios allow advisors to embrace that fiduciary responsibility. So that's another growth area. I think robos have been important to the market in a bigger way than we realized because they've aided in financial education. So you look at the U.S. and every day 10,000 people turn 65 years old and not everyone knows about finance, right? But, you know, you don't call your brother or sister or your mom or dad or friends and say, hey, you know, I've saved this much or I haven't saved this much or I don't know how to do this. So being able to go to a robo where you don't have to say who you are um, allows right. you to become educated enough to have a conversation with an advisor. And the fact that most robos are using only ETFs, you learn about the benefit of if you tend to invest in lower cost products, over the long run, you'll get better performance. It teaches you about asset allocation. Um, it teaches you a little bit about benchmarks. But what we know is most people don't want to make a choice of doing anything without having that conversation. So that's why we've seen the hybrid model of having the robo plus when you need to or want to, the ability to talk to someone has really driven asset flows. So you look at Schwab, you look at Vanguard, that combined hybrid approach has really played to the advantage of the firms offering that. So I think there's a number of things that have happened. I think fixed income ETFs have grown, um, but overall, I think what people have learned is it is hard to find hedge funds or active funds that consistently deliver alpha. And so you can generate alpha through asset allocation. I think that's one of the big findings that has driven the ETF industry. You know, we ended um, 2021 with basically $10.3 trillion in assets and $1.3 trillion in net inflows. So it was a phenomenal year in terms of the growth in assets. Now, some of that is because the markets went up, right. but a lot of it is due to significant inflows. Like we gathered over $530 billion more in net inflows in 2021 than we did in 2020. Remarkable. I, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit tickled by the, you know, the way that you describe this virtuous cycle of, of uh, the ETF business, how, how, you know, I felt for a very long time uh, and having sort of been around, be, you know, being in the industry for 30 years or so um, that that indexing itself, not, not necessarily passive ETFs, but indexing in, uh, in particular, which was gaining you know popularity and has really sort of exploded in the last 10, 15 years. Um, was was making was sort of uh, causing the business to become less exciting. You know, it was, you know, I sort of, grew, I grew up as an advisor in this business, um, being excited about stories, about stocks, about names, about, you know, talking to clients about specific opportunities in, in the market. Um, 
And then when passive, and I, I was gone from the industry, from, from retail, uh, you know, just around the time ETFs were starting to, to uh, rise in popularity. And I started to feel like, like, you know, yeah, it's exciting in its own right, passive investing. Uh, you can easily get excited about how and why passive investing works. But then it removes all the excitement on the other side of stock selection and active management, you know, which was always a part of, of the dialogue when I was an advisor. Um, but I feel like this virtuous cycle that you're talking about has brought back the magic or the excitement of the market. And it's, it, it's attracted younger investors who, for the, you know, I think, I think at, at some point around the you know, uh, great financial crisis, um, Markets were, I mean, pe people in the market, the, the chatter was that, you know, how are we going to get young investors in? And, and, you know, after this crisis, they're just, you know, lost trust in the market, lost trust in the way things work. Do I, you know, do I, you know, this sort of cent old sort of centralized, uh, not old, but archaic centralized way of thinking about markets and investing has sort of given way and, and given rise to this sort of, you know, this new I think overused term of democratized, <laughs> um, you know, markets. And, and so it's, it's, it's newly exciting now to see how, how tickers are used to describe markets as opposed to referring to, you know, the Zetra DAX or the FTSE 100, you know, now people just call the tickers when, when they talk about, about those markets. And, and um, it's exciting to see the, ex it, I, I think, it's exciting to see the reaction that tickers get uh, in terms of, of, you know, bringing people into the dialogue or bringing people into the conversation about investing. Um, and then the virtuous, the other, the other element of the virtuous cycle that's really interesting where ETFs are concerned is, is this um, sort of uh, competitiveness that it has spurred between advisors and robos. And now, of course, that's given rise to hybrid use of, you know, obviously where, where advisors are now using fintech to their benefit in order to supplement, you know, all of their traditional, uh, their traditional investment planning work and using model portfolios. So, so, um, Deborah, great observations. Uh, and, and, um, are there any, um, is there anything in particular that you've been working on in terms of research, uh, that, has yielded any interesting findings? I, I think you, I think you covered a lot of those things, but, but if you had to choose, you know, probably the most remarkable thing about what's happening as a result of the ETF industry, um, what would you say that is? Well, I think one thing I would be remiss if I didn't do is say, you know, Canada rarely gets credit for having created and listed the first successful ETF, Absolutely. right? So, <laughs> yeah. uh, March 9th, 1990. So, I think Canada has done a lot of things within the ETF framework that you rarely get credit for. Cannabis ETFs, uh, fixed income, leverage inverse, um, and of course the recent launch of uh, real Bitcoin and Ethereum ETFs that aren't notes. Right. Um, so clearly, you know, I think the there's been a lot of discussion around the whole crypto space, and so you know that's relatively new. Um, we've seen significant uh, growth recently in assets. And I think that's a space that uh, we need to con continue to watch. Um, but I guess what really probably sticks out for me is uh, 
the number of people, because if I go back, just like you said, um, many people ignored ETS for many years. And right. I think the thing that always makes me smile is colleagues that I've worked with over the years who really shunned them and wanted nothing to do with them now are, you know, big advocates of using them. People are trading them. They're selling them. And uh, somehow they've forgotten kind of their uh, past where they wanted nothing to do with them, right? So um, I think that conversion from people who are like, I'm an active manager, I'll never use right. them. If you're not going to go me commission, I'll never use them. If you're not going to whatever. Um, and clearly the other study we just completed is the number of institution investors that use ETF. So we've seen a significant growth in institutions. Now you might say, well, what do you count as an institution? In the U.S., the SEC requires that any institution that manages over 100 million reports their holdings to them on a quarterly basis. So if you use that as a threshold, that can count registered investment advisors, which manage over 100 million, right? So, um, but I think if someone's managing that amount of money, the way they invest is more institutional and less likely to be based on just a friendly relationship with someone who convinced you to buy something. Right. So... We do see that institutions still account for half of the assets invested in ETFs, and those institutions are all over the world. We also see significant growth in the number of mutual funds that are using ETFs. So um, I guess, you know, the big takeaway I would have is, you know, we have seen significant growth. You guys like hockey sticks, other people talks about innings and baseball. Um, but, you know, I would still say that there's a big trajectory to go up in terms of the use, the types of products and the potential for ETFs going forward. And it's important to remember, ETFs, it's a wrapper, it's a mutual fund with added benefits of being listed and traded on exchange. So it's not an asset class. Inside of it in Canada, you know, active strategies account for 23% of all the assets. So right. that's another thing that all along, Canada has been a leader in the active space, because if we look globally, only 4% of assets are in active strategies. So I think there's a lot of opportunity where there's tax benefits of, of ETFs in the U.S. where we're seeing large mutual fund complexes converting mutual funds into ETFs. So if we look at some of the largest new ETFs um, in 2021, they came from Dimensional Fund Advisor, right. uh, which is kind of interesting because historically they only allowed trained advisors to sell their products or use their products. Um, so this actually opens up their products to the whole world, really. So they, yeah, um, they've so democratized DFA. <laughs> exactly. That's right. I mean, it was it was um, one of those things that people another you know sort of fable about about in you know I'm a DFA advisor and and that was you know that was that was like having a CFA. <laughs> exactly. Right. Um, and you know we see ETFs popping up in new jurisdictions around the world. Yeah. We see them being registered for sale. So, you know, I'm still, it's funny because when I started back in 97 talking about ETFs, I thought like I had a two-year job of educating people and writing research. And here I am, you know, many years later and still feeling, well, one, excited about the opportunity and what's happening and the people. Um, but two, you know, I still think that there's a lot of opportunity to educate people and continue to grow and evolve the way um, ETFs can be used. I think, you know, distributor ledger technology is going to enhance and change things. I think that uh, fractional shares use of ETFs will allow them to get into defined contribution plans where we're not currently easily able to use ETFs. So there's still big opportunities for ETFs. 
Um, and it's just a better wrapper than using traditional mutual funds. Um, you know, it saves a lot of cost. It's more tax efficient right. in the U.S. And uh, yeah, so I think there's still big opportunities going forward. I wanted to uh, ask you about what your observations were towards the end of the year in terms of um, how different factors were behaving. For example, you know, the, uh, the sort of flip-flopping between value and growth um, that's been happening in the context of the inflationary outlook. Um, how, are, how are investors, from, from the standpoint of observing flows, how, how do you see investors behaving uh, are they complacent about inflation or, or have they, you know, have, have you seen sort of wholesale moves by investors to express concern about inflation or, or is it sort of behind the curve still? You know, that's a good question. A good question. And I think one of the things that is unique about ETFs is you can see the flows very quickly after the end of the month where mutual funds takes weeks. So I think that some have been investing in, uh, inflation-protected fixed-income securities that are packaged as ETFs. Right. So we've seen that end happening. We haven't seen money going into gold the way we did a year ago. So I think if you look a year ago, there was significant inflows in all of 2020 into gold and commodity products, so about $63 billion. Uh, this year, we saw net outflows. So that's a little bit surprising because many would say gold is an inflation hedge. Um, and we didn't see that. So I think what people are using is a bit different. And although I think people are concerned about inflation, many have been, I think, more optimistic on the fact that the markets, well, I should say the economies are opening up and COVID's getting better and therefore looking to invest in equities. So the majority of money during 2021 really was going into equity exposure. Um, and a little bit into fixed income and net outflows out of commodities. So although people have been concerned about inflation, we see some money going into inflation-linked bonds. Right. The majority of money has been going actually into the U.S. market, other developed markets. Um, and I think also the other place where we've seen money move is, you know, China has kind of different views for people, but the uh, local bonds have been included into many of the fixed income indices. And if you look at Chinese bonds, they're yielding about 3%, which is much better than many other bonds. So we've seen many investors looking at investing through ETFs into mainland China equities, as well as the bond market. Um, so people are looking for income, I think is another trend that we see, uh, which clearly if you go back the prior year, uh, many companies said they were paying out less dividends. And so we saw people moving away from higher dividend yielding ETFs. This past year, we see money going back into those strategies. So I think income was probably something people were looking for and the participation of what they deemed to be markets recovering in a post-COVID reality. Um, although I think we've uh, seen where are we with COVID and our expectations yeah. continuing to uh, move about a bit. Well, it goes to your, your point earlier about you know, 10,000 people a day retiring and, or sorry, was it 10,000 people a day turning 65 or 10,000 people a day? Five. Yeah. Which was yeah. the, 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 uh, standby <laughs> for uh, retirement age. But, um, so, so we could see, we could see where, where the trend towards looking, you know, continuing to reach for, for higher income, uh, growing. Are there, are there, are there any, um, 
In terms of, of forward looking at, at uh, looking forward at fund formations or ETF formations, what sort of what are there any trends that you're seeing in what some of the upcoming new products might be that that are, are in the pipeline? You know, that's a great question. So we know since 2013 in the U.S., people have been trying to do spot ETFs, right? And so the SEC is not comfortable with that. So right. I think many are trying to read the tea leaves to figure out when do they get comfortable with that. Um, and many would debate whether futures are better than using spot. So I think that's one that people are trying and keep changing the way they're putting in proposals to the SEC to get approval. Um, I think more broadly, what we're seeing is as many of the active um, asset management shops that historically didn't want to have ETFs have embraced the wrapper and right. offered active products in the U.S., we are seeing that they're now looking at how should they bring out products in Europe and around the world. And so I would say that most firms want to find economies of scale if they're going to offer products. And so they need to think about, does it make sense to take the U.S. 1940 Act wrapper and try and bring it to Canada, you know, Canadians would say better off having something that's a locally domiciled Canadian structure, right. more tax efficient. Same is true when you go around the world. If you're buying a U.S. listed ETF or a mutual fund, you're going to suffer 30 percent withholding. You can get some of that back, but you're also likely to suffer U.S. inheritance tax, which most people uh, don't like to pay tax if they don't have to. So you're seeing them move to using the usage ETFs that are structures domiciled in Europe and can be sold really all over the world. Um, I think the other reason for that is in Europe, we have the EU taxonomy, you know, thinking about ESG, and we have the regulations where all usage ETFs and mutual funds have been classified as Article 6, 8, or 9. And if they're 8 or 9, it means they're kind of, some refer to it as light green or dark green. So as investors look for ESG and have a concern about green or pink washing, um, embracing the usage wrapper where it is defined specifically what does it mean to be Article 8 or 9, we are seeing that being adopted around the world. So I think, you know, there's interesting things happening in Brazil where they're allowing foreign ETFs to be wrapped as BDRs. And for the first time, Brazilians are investing outside of Brazil, which is the largest market in terms of assets in Latin America. Historically, they were just buying local debt. And so they need to understand um, asset allocation, investing in foreign markets, how to trade ETFs, how to think about this. Um, so it's, it's fun and interesting to watch yeah. ETFs really yeah. evolving everywhere in the world. And they're all at different phases of understanding um, and the exchanges and the regulators are trying to figure out, should they allow foreign products to be registered? Should they be listed for sale? Um, how do they educate people? Um, so there's a lot going on, which is why I'm so excited about the product and like the research angle. Yeah, I, I was thinking, uh, you know, during our conversation about, you know, what was the moment when you decided that ETFs was the direction you needed to go in in your career. What, what was the, what was that moment? What was like? What spurred you to put your hand up and make that decision at that moment? Well, to be fair, I wanted a job at Morgan Stanley. They initially had come to me and asked me if I was interested in being uh, part of the marketing team for the equity division. And the person who was running that ended up moving into technology. And then the role of coming in as the director of marketing for a product they had called Opals. And ETFs came about and uh, I jumped at it. And then just as I got involved and they started to take off, it was like 
so much fun because it was really entrepreneurial. I was sitting yeah. next to a trader yeah. and we were like this little business, um, you know, developing products. We created pages on the Bloomberg terminal. So I used to have all the ETFs organized uh, on a Morgan Stanley page. Um, it was just great fun. And it was also funny because back in the day, um, a candy that you might know as Starburst here used to be called Opal Fruits. Yeah. So yeah. whenever I was doing a marketing uh, roadshow or doing meetings internally, I would buy cases of these candies and hand them out as enticement to get people to come along. So when uh, Opal Fruits became Starburst in the UK, they were like, hey, you have to change the name of Opals to Starburst. I'm like, sorry, can't do that. But um, yeah, it was just fun to come up with that. So was, fun it, and it, was, was it serendipity or I mean, did you just like... I, you, I think you already had, I think in your, in your, um, you know, because of your background, you, you already had that in you. I mean, to, to, to sort of, you were already warm to the index, to the idea of indexed investing and, and there was this wrapper, but I, I'm just, I, it's, I'm always curious to know about the genesis of, of decisions, you know, and, and that's, that was, a, that was obviously a, a decision that has factored large in your life in terms of, of where you've gone with it. And, um, I'm, I'm, it's very, it's really interesting to hear about, uh, you know, because you're, you're talking about like Brazil, for example, where, where so much education is required. Um, and of course that's what ETF, that's where ETFGI comes in, right? I mean, that's your, that is your mission is to, is to educate market participants on, on, uh, in whichever jurisdiction you're, you're, uh, uh, holding your conferences um, on on all of these changes, and uh, there 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 isn't a better person to do it. <laughs> I I, no, I, I think I think I think that you're a um, highly underestimated resource. I, I, I you know I, I think that's less so more recently. Probably in the last three, four, five years, you've you've really I think you've you've really risen sort of front and center to prominence in, in the, uh, the global ETF market in terms of, of uh, um, you know, people's awareness of, of what you're doing. Um, but congratulations. I, it's exciting to, we're, we're, we're so excited to be um, affiliated with your, your conferences in terms of, of helping you to get the word, word out. And um, it, it's, it's going to be very exciting to see uh, what, what comes next. Um, Deborah, before we go, I, I wanted to ask you about we, because I think that's a really important, uh, that's definitely a really important initiative, uh, to talk about. Um, how, how, how has it transformed the, uh, diversity in the market in, in finance? I'm not sure if it's transform the whole market, but I do think for the ETF industry, which clearly touches on so many things, right? We talk about this ecosystem. So, you know, you have investors, you have the providers of the products, you have um, index providers, exchanges, the banks and brokers, the law firms, the custodians, PR firms, you know, media, et cetera. And um, I think early on, as I said, many women were happy to raise their hand and get involved. And you do see even within the bigger like law firms, et cetera, which tend to often have more male partners, often it is the women that have put their hands up and have become real experts in this field and help to transform what's available. Um, so I think, you know, we are not just for women though, I should say that uh, right from the beginning, right. I said, men have to be part of the membership. Men have to help, you know, women advance their careers. So it's not, um, 
you know, just for women. And it's also not just about women, it's about diversity, right? So there's many other ways we need to think about this, but I do think it has helped people. You know, the mentorship program, which I've been a mentor, but I have to say, um, often I feel I learn as much from my mentees as I think they say they've learned from me. So it's always give and take. Um, and um, yeah, we have chapters, you know, we have a few people in Nigeria, we have people in Kenya, you know, so it's fun and interesting to watch the growth and the activity. So even in the past few years, when we haven't been able to do many in-person events, we've had really interesting webinars on, you know, professional development, on different products that are out there. Uh, we've partnered with UN Women, Global Compact, Sustainable Stock Exchange, the IFC and World Federation of Exchanges to ring the bells to celebrate International Women's Day, which is March 8th. So, you know, nine years ago or eight years ago, I guess we started and there were nine exchanges. Last year, we had over 100 exchanges. Some were virtual, very few were in person. Uh, we do events around that. So there's huge opportunities to get involved. It doesn't cost anything. And we also have to thank our sponsors. So corporate sponsors um, contribute money to help us be able to do the events that we do. And uh, they can post jobs on our website. So they're able to uh, attract female talent and uh, raise their profile. Um, so hoping that 2022 means a few more in-person events and getting to see people. But um, yeah, I do think it's made a difference and I'm hoping it continues to do so. Yeah, it'll be a relief to get back to some normalcy and and to be able to resume, uh, you know, in-person functions, if, if ever. Hopefully it's not too far away. Um, I, I'm, I'm guessing it's an understatement to say that, that your work uh, with women in ETFs has been gratifying. Oh, definitely. Yeah. I mean, I've met so many nice people and enjoyed the events and the camaraderie. Um, it's really been great and supportive. Um, so yes, definitely. It's been uh, very fulfilling. Deborah, I have one last question. Um, and seeing as you were involved in athletics throughout your life, <laughs> um, it's, 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 a, it's a pertinent question. Um, would you rather be the worst player on the best team or the best player on the worst team? Wow. Um, I'm more likely to be the worst player on the best team than the best player on the worst team, honestly. Um, uh, I don't know. I, I just enjoy being out there with the team, playing. Um, you know, after graduating from university, I was on a master swim team. So it's something you can continue doing, um, being on team sports for forever, really. Um, and I, every day, try to go to the gym and do reform Pilates as part of a class. And that camaraderie of doing it together with fun instructors is something, it's a great way to get out there and do something beyond need a break from ETFs occasionally. Deborah, thank you so much. That was uh, that was a great chat. That was very enlightening. I think there's uh, so much to take away from from uh, what we've talked about today. Thank you so much for your your um, insight and your incredibly valuable time. Well, it was great to be here. Thank you so much. And if anyone wants to join Women ETFs, just go to the website, and we'd welcome you with uh, open arms to our events. Terrific. We'll we'll put that in the the show notes. Mm -hmm.